Heavenly Father, we're thankful that we have this opportunity to come before thee, to sit, as it were, at thy feet for learning, and to look into this, the greatest book that has ever been written. Heavenly Father, we ask for the presence of thy spirit now uh, in this afternoon hour that thou wast grant unto us a passage to meditate on and also uh, the content that we may leave from this place a changed people as well. Be with those that could not gather with us this afternoon hour, especially the elderly and the shut-in, those that are sick and those that are going through perhaps trials of their own, dear Lord. Be with them and provide for them even as we trust that thou wilt provide for us now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sort of in the vein of uh, this morning's service about uh, mourning being turned into joy, uh, I'd like to read a passage from the Old Testament. This is also from Genesis, the 22nd chapter. Genesis chapter 22. I'd like to begin reading at the first verse. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham. And he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. And Abraham rose up early in the morning, and saddled his ass, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and clave the wood for the burnt offering, and rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. And they came to the place which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there, and laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand, and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven, and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad. Neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. 
And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day, In the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. I've read until the 14th verse. There is a lot in this account that we've read together that is not said. And as I've been reading through Genesis in my own private meditation, I've been thinking about these things. You know, this word doesn't change, of course, but we change. And as we reread passages that we have read before, we are not the same person that read that passage the last time. Things have happened. The uh, events of life have unfolded. We change with them. And as I read this again, I, I was thinking on this a little bit more, and maybe now from the perspective as a father. I'm often the last one to bed at night. And one of the things I almost always do as the last one to go to sleep is I go check on the children. And I go into their room and I look at them sleeping and cover them up. And we have two bedrooms for the children, one for the boys and one for the girls. And I see their, their little forms and they're sleeping, and they all look so innocent, of course, when they're sleeping. Sometimes when they're awake, not so much. But <clears throat> when, they're, when they're asleep, it just seems everything is so perfect. And I cover them up, and I sometimes kiss them as I do that. And as I've been thinking about that, I thought about this account. You know, when we read through these accounts in Scripture the style of the writing is often very forthright. It simply gives us things as they happen. And our, our modern literature is written a little differently. We go more inside the head of the person who is in there. And as we were talking even today at lunch, we were saying, you know, it would be so interesting to be able to understand what was, or to, <clears throat> to read, to understand what was going on in the heads of the people of, these, of what these things are, are written. But I think we can engage in a little bit of speculation guided by the scripture here. Unlike me, Abraham heard God's voice audibly. God had spoken to him in many times, at many times in the past. <clears throat> he was now an old man, and he had had the opportunity of seeing. God's faithfulness through time, right from the very beginning. It's, it's, it's kind of, we sometimes forget, I think, how much time had passed in this man's life from when he had married Sarah back in the early days 
to when they had moved up to Haran and spent some time there, and then crossed across the desert, the top of the Fertile Crescent, down into the land that God had promised for him. And now, here he is, some hundred years old, more than a hundred years old at this point, with a lifetime of hearing God both speak to him and following his words. And God gives him this simple, bizarre set of instructions, but just as clear as at every other time. Take now thy son, thine only son, Isaac. Now, wait a minute. Abraham had another son. What about Ishmael? There was to be no ambiguity here. God considered Isaac Abraham's only son, the son of promise. Whom thou lovest. Can you imagine how much Abraham must have loved that boy? He had waited a lifetime, over a lifetime, to receive him. This special child, this child that was going to be the key to his legacy, God had in no uncertain terms told him that this boy is going to be the one through which there's going to be one who blesses all nations. Through him, your seed are going to be like the stars in the sky. No uncertain terms, no ambiguity here. And now, God tells him to go to Moriah and offer him for a burnt offering. Abraham had offered many animals at many times, but never another man on an, off, on, on an altar. The idea would have, seemed, would have been repugnant to him. And now, this son? How can this be? There's a paragraph break, and in the third verse it just simply says, and Abraham rose up early in the morning. God had told him this, maybe in the stillness of the evening. And the next morning he gets up and goes and starts. But what happened that night? What must it have been like for Abraham? I'm sure he was the last one to get any sleep that night. I can't imagine that he slept at all. I think if we had gone to that campsite that night, we would have seen the old patriarch some distance away from the tents, bowing down and crying out to God, wrestling in prayer with the Almighty. How can this be? My guess is the world and maybe the angelic beings never saw such wrestling in prayer until our Lord prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Can you imagine that, your own son? Maybe he went in to check on the young lad lying asleep, like I sometimes do with my own children. Harm him? How? How can this be? But sometime, during that night time, I think Abraham came to a conclusion.
This is found in Hebrews 11, uh, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. As Abraham prayed, as he wrestled with this command from God, there was only one solution that he could come up with to this whole problem. Only one. He knew God was faithful. He knew God kept his promises. Of that he was sure. He had waited a hundred years for that son. He knew that that son was the key to all the promises of God. So the only conclusion that he came to was that if God is asking me to kill this boy, somehow he's going to bring him back from the dead. The interesting thing was, Abraham was wrong about how things were going to play out, but he was exactly right about the heart of God. He knew God. God called him his friend. Have you ever thought of that? The God of the universe calling you his friend? We talk about friendship among equals. Our kids talk about their friends at school. We've had an opportunity to meet some of their friends. They've even come over into our home. Mostly equals. But friendship between the God of the universe and one lone man? What a concept. You know, God tells us things about himself in ways that we can understand. As I've been thinking about the attributes and character of God, and then the things that he tells us about himself, you know, Genesis is, is, is an excellent book. If you want to understand things about God, I can think of no better place to start than with that book. You'll learn a lot about him from its pages. God, first of all, is unchanging. Second, he is infinite. Third, he knows everything. Those three things alone make him very, very different from us. In fact, unknowable. But God is first and foremost a personality. You see, if we were left with those attributes of God alone, we would conclude, I think, like some other religions, that God is some kind of an impersonal, infinite life force. Some kind of nameless, boundless being. Mind, maybe. And we would miss the greatest truth about him, which is that he loves. You see, the Buddhists have a God without a personality. And so for them, to become one with God is to become nothing, to cease existence, to be absorbed. But God tells us things about himself, and he does it in a way 
that would seem to personify him, make him more like a man, a man even with limits like us. You know, when I, was, I read not that long ago about how God sends those three messengers to Abraham to tell him about the destruction of Sodom. And he says, we've come down to see if Sodom, paraphrasing now, but to see if Sodom is really as bad as it seems to be. The smell of it has reached up to heaven, and, and I'm going to come down now and see how bad things really are. As if God really needs to come down to see anything. But what does that tell us about the personality of God? That he's a God who's sure, who's compassionate, who said, maybe I've got something wrong and I need to come check it out. Because that's the kind of person he wants us to be. You see, when God reveals things about his personality, it's for our benefit so we can become like him. That's why Christ came. That's why he became a man. So we could understand God. So God now tests Abraham. Not because God wanted to prove Abraham in the sense that he didn't know if Abraham was going to pass or fail. No. First of all, for Abraham's benefit. And second, for ours. You see, Abraham is the father of faith, we call him. Read through Romans, read through Hebrews. You can see what a, what a key figure he is to understanding what God is looking for. God said in his wisdom that faith equals righteousness. And Abraham is shown as the example. It says simply, and it says it right in, in Genesis, if you want to read it for yourself. Abraham went out, looked up at the stars. God says, your, your children shall be as the stars in, he in heaven. And it just says simply, the commentary in Genesis is, and Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. End of story. Aren't you thankful that that's the case? And that God didn't impute righteousness to Abraham after he was going to offer his son, say? Because then how would any of us be righteous? I don't know that I could ever raise my hand to kill a child of mine. I recoil from even the idea, the contemplation of the idea. No, God said, Abraham's faith, that simple belief in what God said was enough. But the thing is, faith never abides alone. And we talked about this a little bit in lunch hour, during the lunch hour uh, as we had our meal together. Faith is never alone. We are the ones that have separated faith into two elements, belief and action. When in the Bible, they're always together. Faith always produces action. And in fact, if you remove the action from faith, you no longer have faith. James clearly says that. Show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Abraham says simply to the young men that went with him, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. I and the lad will come again to you. One way or another, two of us will return. But can you imagine that journey? Three days? You see the place afar off? I know if it had been me, I would have been dragging my feet. 
hoping for some kind of a new revelation from God, some kind of a new direction, scanning the skies maybe for a sign, something, anything that would tell him that God has somehow changed his mind? He's taking it all. You know, one of the things that pleases me most, especially about my sons, is when they're willing to help me, when they show that helpful attitude and they want to work with me, they want to do things with me. That's one of the things that I'm really, makes me feel some fatherly pride. Not because I've done anything spectacular. The Lord and my, fa- my own father know that I was not an eager helper many times when it came to things to do. Isaac, shouldering up the wood that's to serve as his own pyre, carrying it for his elderly father. Can you imagine the stabbing twinge that must have given Abraham to think if you only knew what that wood's going to be used for? Carrying that sharpened knife with him all that way? That would have been hard. Talk about mourning. Each step closer, closer, closer. The weight of that. And then the question from his son. My father, behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? There's something missing here. I know how this goes. I've seen this before. Isaac was not all that young at this point. Some, I think... uh, some, some biblical scholars have pegged his age in the, in the 20s or something like that. Certainly not a child. I don't know exactly how that works or how those chronologies work. I'm not an expert there. But he was no 8-year-old, 10-year-old boy, it seems. And Abraham simply says, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. God will provide a lamb. A theme echoed through scripture and perhaps at that very spot that God had appointed for the sacrifice of Isaac, that may have been the exact location where his own son would be hoisted on a cross of wood. And that time there would be no other substitute for him. You know, I used to be a lot more unsure, I think, about the Bible. I used to intentionally stay away from things like the arguments of atheists and criticisms of Scripture because I thought they might shake my faith. And so I intentionally didn't really read or look much there. As I've gotten older, as I've walked with the Lord a little bit more, I have to tell you I'm a lot less concerned about the authenticity of Scripture. In fact, it's not even something that I give a second thought to anymore. This this book is way too perfect to be the work of man. The way that it fits, the layers that it has, the 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 superlatives you could heap on it because of its narrative uh, uh, depth and arc—it's just it's mind-boggling. It just this book continues to blow me away, as it, in the words of the speech of of common speech, because I see in it things that. You know, 
on one hand, in this account, we see the pain of a father going to lose a son and the anguish and the agony that must have been there until he came to that conclusion that God was going to do something about this. And then in the New Testament, we see the pain of the son struggling with the will of the father. The perfection, the balance, the beauty. And in the same location, this same Mount Moriah, where the sacrifice was going to play out now in full. And we see it all. You see, I believe the Bible to be true because truth is that which best conforms to reality. That's the best definition I've ever heard of truth. That which best conforms to reality. And the more that I read of Scripture and the more that I walk with the Lord, I see the way he works and the things that he says, and I see those things that he say as best conforming to the reality, not only of the universal human condition, not only of the things that I can't see, but the things about myself. He accurately explains me to myself. And he does so in a way that's so tender and loving. He never gives it to me all at once. He gives me these things as, it, as he says, daily bread, day by day, portions. And he explains himself in little ways, in joys and sorrows. And as I've been thinking about this and, and this monumental event, God waited right until the very moment where he raised his hand with that knife. Until there could be no escape from what was going to happen. Abraham was ready to let that knife drop. It may have taken him a while to get that hand up there. But that knife was going to drop. That was his intention. And here also we see a little picture of what God considers faith to be. We heard this morning about Ananias and Sapphira. Faith never leaves the back door. Faith doesn't hedge its bets. Faith doesn't say, well, just in case, I've got this little extra pot here that if this, this religious movement dies down and the money that I've put into the common purse here is all used up, at least I've got this to fall back on. That's, what's ma that's what made what Ananias and Sapphira did so detestable, I think, to God. It would have been better that they not give it. Who knows, maybe they gave 90%, just kept back 10. I mean, what's a tenth? What's the big deal? They gave more than some people that didn't give any. Yes, but when we do things in a half-hearted way with God, there is no righteousness. Half-heartedness with God is unrighteousness. Faith is righteousness. Anything less than faith, the Bible calls unbelief. You can read in Hebrews what it says about that. It's that serious. Abraham didn't hedge his bets. It was all or nothing. He was a man of faith. And right at that moment, it says, The angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. 
You can just imagine the relief in his heart. Here am I, Lord. Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. Didn't God know that before? Of course he did. But he needed Abraham to know that. You see, that special child of promise had maybe turned into a bit of an idol for him. Even though there was nothing bad about the lad or the circumstances of his birth, they were miracles, after all. The way God was going to bless the nations. But somehow, in Abraham's mind, perhaps, that love for the boy was starting to crowd out his love for God. And it was necessary for God to test Abraham in this way. Again, I say God already knew. It's not like this was news to God. But here we see what God is really looking for. Not the sacrifice, but the heart. That was the important thing. The heart of Abraham. Not the bloody sacrifice. And it's always been about the heart. And now perhaps we have a better context too when we look at the Beatitudes and we see what God really is interested in. Not Levitical exactitude. Precise rituals and laws. That was necessary for people to understand the difference between clean and unclean, holy and unholy. But what God was after the whole time was the heart. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. I've heard it said from someone who keeps sheep that that ram was not there very long. He said that when a ram gets caught by his horns, one of two things will happen in fairly short order. Either the ram will break free, or he'll pull and push so hard he'll actually rip his horns right off. So the fact that that ram was there and caught meant that ram had not been there for very long. Perhaps right at the time when God spoke and right at that moment provided that substitution. And so Abraham now joyfully offered that ram on that altar and instead of a burnt offering of a son, it was the burnt offering of a ram for thanksgiving to the Lord for his provision. In fact, he names that very place Jehovah Jireh, the place where God provides, the God who provides. What a fitting name for a place that would one day perhaps be called the place of the skull. God providing. And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time and said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies." 
and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned unto his young men, and they rose up and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. I think that return trip was a very different one than the trip on the way there. Mourning, heaviness, had indeed been turned to joy. And not only that, but there was after that a special blessing from God that came on Abraham. An affirmation. Not just an affirmation, but, but a multiplying of the blessing because of the faith of Abraham. So many people have a wrong idea about God. And when you have a wrong idea about God, you have a wrong idea about everything, including yourself. People think that God is a God who demands sacrifice, and he's only a God of justice and punishment. God is a God of love. God is a God who takes the cost on himself and adds blessing to blessing for those that will obey him. But you'll never know that unless you believe. You see, in the Bible, understanding always follows faith. Here we see it as well in Abraham. You know, this world says, look, you explain it to me first in a way that I can understand, then I'll believe. That's not belief. That's not belief. That's not faith. God says, believe first and you will understand. What would have happened to Abraham if he had refused to go through with this? And said, God, 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 I I, I know what you're really like. I know you don't want human sacrifice. I remember what you told to grandfather Noah that if a, if a man sheds another man's blood, by him shall man's, by him shall, or by men shall his blood be shed, sorry. This can't be consistent with your character, therefore I will not go through with this. What would he have missed out on? God says believe and you'll understand. If you're waiting for God to explain himself to you first, before you believe, you will neither either you will neither believe nor understand and i can't help you with that you see not even sarah was involved in this one it's probably a good thing she wasn't she would have tried to stop abraham i'm sure god spoke to abraham instead He's speaking to you now, whether you maybe acknowledge that or not. And your response, your response matters. If you will believe, like Abraham did, you will understand and you will experience the blessings of God. If you wait for him to explain himself first, you won't see that. You know, Jesus, it says, he taught them in parables. 
That's such an interesting thing to me. These parables, these parables that for those who were ready and receptive, who believed him, they would understand something that Jesus was trying to communicate. They would take that home with them. But for those that were of this attitude, the skeptical attitude, like the Pharisees were, they wouldn't understand. They had to come to him afterwards and say, how long do you make us to doubt? Tell us plainly. If you're the Christ, tell us. And what was Jesus' answer to them? I've told you already, and you didn't believe. That probably confused them a little bit. He says, I've already told you. What do you mean? When did you tell me? You weren't willing to believe, so you never understood. The common people that could see themselves for what they were, they believed, and they understood, and they realized who he was. And they called Hosanna to the king of David, son of David. The differences are stark. We can't sugarcoat them from this pulpit. Read them for yourself. But what you do with them is critical. I, I don't know how else to say this. I wish I could explain it in some better way. But when God himself doesn't give me that option... I, I can't explain it in a way that will satisfy the skeptic. I can only say, believe and you'll understand. And if you're not willing to believe, then you're not ready to understand. And I'm sorry it is that way, but that's the way that God decreed it. But I can see a glimmer of something in there that is very important. We talked about this at lunch, too. That by making it about faith, by making righteousness about faith alone, God opened the way to everybody. There's no one now that's barred. Because it doesn't depend on you. It doesn't depend on your actions. It doesn't depend on your intelligence. It doesn't depend on any other attribute you may possess. It comes down simply to belief. And that is foolishness to some. But it's the power of God to those that believe. May the Lord add whatever was lacking to what was said. Amen. Hymn 245 reads, Faith at last its seal receiveth, when affliction's heat it leaveth, as the gold by fire tried. For the highest joys of heaven, having suffered much and striven, will God's own be glorified. Suffering tuneth hearts for singing, psalms that ever will be ringing, till they yearn for heaven alone. Where those who the palms are bearing, with the choirs their gladness sharing, praising, standing, stand before the throne. Suffering giveth faith its power, makest humble every hour. O oh, what can with thee compare? Here men call thee but a burden, yonder thou wilt be a guerdon that not everyone may share. Brethren, Suffering is high favor that in varying ways the Savior to his followers hath shown. When they, racked by pain and sighing, when they, bearing pangs of dying, through long weary nights did groan. When in greatest pain is bearing, then the heart, his heart, is nearing, drawing closer lovingly. 
and for this doth cry and tremble, make me thine own death resemble, so that I may live with thee. Lastly, after sighs uncounted, every barrier is surmounted, and the veil is rent in twain. Who is able now to measure what a wealth of peace and pleasure we in heaven shall attain? Let us then behold, O Savior, yonder heights more clearly ever, till at length our time shall come, when our faithful striving ended, and by angel hosts attended, we too shall be welcomed home. I think the Abraham that struggled with God that night outside of his tent was not the same man that he was before. That experience changed him, much like Jacob's wrestling with the angel did. There was a new dimension. And though no one likes suffering, no one likes difficulty, we can see the results of it. We can see the benefit of it. And one day in glory, we will see the, one day in heaven, we will see the glory of it. You know, these hymns that we sing, many of them were written out of deep personal experience. Experiences that my generation and those after me have never had to go through. We've had it easy. Maybe that will change one day. Maybe we too will have to suffer in some difficult way for the Savior. But if we do, let's remember Abraham also. He simply believed God. That was counted to him for righteousness. But his his actions in his faithfulness brought so much more. In many ways, I think we've been the, the beneficiaries of those who were faithful before us. My heroes of faith are those, many of them were those that served in, in prison for the Lord. That generation is rapidly disappearing. There's not many left. But I hope that I too, like they, can have that type of faith, that if things do become difficult again, I'll be able to rise up early in the morning and go and not explain away what the Lord is commanding me to do. May the Lord add whatever was lacking to what was said, and may he dismiss us now with his blessing. Amen.